Welcome to How to Sell Drugs, presented by Lucy, a podcast about drug culture, policy, and business with an emphasis on harm reduction. We believe that prohibition and abstinence-only policies result in poor results for society. We'll be discussing how drugs are sold, and perhaps more importantly, how they should be sold. This is not intended to advocate drug use and meant for educational purposes only. Our primary sponsor for this podcast, as always, is us. If you or someone you know uses nicotine, we encourage you to visit lucy.co to try our range of delicious and satisfying products that we hope you'll find to be much better than cigarettes, vapes, smokeless tobacco, and other traditional tobacco products. Today you have me, David Renteln, my co-founder, Sammy. Hi, Sammy. Hey, David. Hey. And with us today, we have Hamilton Morris, a man who needs no introduction for those who are fascinated about drugs and drug culture. Uh, but for those of you who don't know, he is probably most well known for his show on Vice, Hamilton's Pharmacopia. Thanks for joining us, Hamilton. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, really appreciate it. So <clears throat> um, before before we get going, it sounded like maybe you had a story about how something stressful happened to you recently. Oh, not stressful. Just I tried your product. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And I hadn't used nicotine in about, it was uh, five months and seven days, I believe. Oh, that's right. It had been a long break. And then the package came. And I was also struggling with this article that I was trying to finish and on deadline. And then I thought, well, you know what's well, really self-destructive to not finish this article <laughs> that's far more dangerous than to not chew this nicotine gum even though it's been so many months so sure. i tried it and did enjoy it but it was amazing to me how rapidly i fully relapsed into <laughs> using nicotine gum continuously wow. every waking moment of the day wow yeah so i mean i think that's good and bad in a sense <laughs> it's, it's good and bad because um, I think with nicotine and with a lot of drugs is that first time you use it and it truly can be miraculous, especially with nicotine, especially for intellectual activities. I find that nicotine, if you don't have any tolerance for writing and for reading is almost unparalleled in its ability to focus you and give you sort of intellectual cognitive stamina. But, um, but the trick is to not use it all the time. Yeah. Yeah, easier uh, said than done. Um, I mean, there is a difference in the pharmacokinetics between an orally absorbed uh, nicotine product and maybe an inhaled one, right? The rapidity of onset from inhaling nicotine is so much faster, results in a, in a higher spike. And Sure, sure. Yeah. And even culturally, you can't sit in a library smoking a cigarette anymore. Yeah. But you can. Have you tried? I have not tried. I never really smoked cigarettes. I've smoked maybe, you know, three or four cigarettes in my entire life. I was always too neurotic to smoke because I just thought it was bad for you and didn't want to do anything that was overtly self-destructive. Sure. I thought, you know, if you're going to do this sort of thing, you might as well do whatever you can to do it in the least damaging way possible. So, and I had both of my grandmothers died from lung cancer and it just seemed like one of these things, like why is it worth it to do it? Yeah. Um, so I was never especially attracted to smoked tobacco. I did for a period become sort of dependent on snorted tobacco. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because I was I was going through a, a period where I was really I really admire this science fiction writer Philip K. Dick, and during I was almost obsessed with him for a little while, and so I was like I should do more things to be like Philip K. Dick as many as possible, sure. which is probably not a good way to live your life. But one of the things that that Philip K. Dick 
loved was snuff. So mm-hmm. I thought, all right, I'll also start getting into snuff as well. And that was when I started to realize that, um, that it almost seems like smoking is the worst way to ingest nicotine. Every other way that I've experimented with has been superior. Superior in what way? Both in terms of health and in terms of, I think you do want this sustained effect, if at all possible. And with snorted tobacco, it's almost the perfect route of administration because you have the fast onset, but then you have the sustained effect that lasts sometimes hours. Why do you think it is that you don't really hear much about people using snuff anymore these days? I think because it's extremely disgusting. <laughs> I think that's, that's more disgusting than smoking. E- it's a good question. Yes, potentially even more disgusting than smoking because the tobacco has to exit your head. You can't, you know, in there's no way to get rid of it. It's not absorbed into your bloodstream. They're small. It's powdered tobacco, but it's not going to just be fully absorbed. So you have to blow black tobacco snot out of your nose repeatedly and it starts to do crazy things to your nose after of course i mean it should be obvious that if you're snorting plant material all day every day that it's going to start doing strange things to your sinuses and and so i never got quite this deep into it the chemist that i work with for a period um was using it even more than i ever did and it had actually stained his nostrils like he had a sort of black ring around his nostrils and you have to carry a special snuff handkerchief all these like weird antiquated (laughs) (laughs) objects to deal with the disgusting side effects of using it that way so even though it is very nice and especially if it's mentholated it's very nice and there's a lot of different flavors and it's it's got an interesting history you know people were snorting tobacco in europe at least long before they were you know after it was brought over before they were smoking it so it's a good way but it also a very disgusting way so that makes a lot of sense, and it, it also translates nicely to uh, an interesting story about some other ways that you've consumed nicotine, because Sammy and, and uh, John and I were joking uh, a long time ago, what's the most extreme way that we can think of to consume nicotine? And we're like, what if somebody was just doing lines of nicotine, just snorting like just the nicotine salt? And I remember when I first talked to you about this project, you told me that you uh, had an interesting, unusual way of consuming nicotine. Can you describe Which that? Which was snorting it, yes. So snorting I, I, what? Nicotine. Pure nicotine, though. <laughs> Pure nicotine. Or nicotine salts. In this case, it was nicotine citrate. And, um, and again, this was out of a, a desire to take advantage of the things that I loved about snuff, but to do it in such a way that it didn't involve snorting enormous amounts of tobacco which also has its own problems as of course you know there's you know potentially additional carcinogenic properties in these other components from the fermentation and tobacco as well as whatever additives that are probably undesirable but maybe not so i was looking for a way to do this in a slightly safer and less disgusting manner and the obvious solution was to take pure nicotine free base create a water soluble salt Nicotine citrate is the one that's used medicinally and snort that and it works. How, uh, how long were you consuming this? I was consuming it as the pure nicotine, uh, solution that I was snorting for not too long, maybe a couple of weeks or something like that before I started to think, you know, again, these are maybe not the best paths to travel. 
it was okay. I think maybe I had a, a like a slightly ominous nosebleed or something like that that made me think, all right. It irritated the possibly. The, yeah. yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. And in, in what context would you use this? Like, you know, in public or? No, I would use it primarily while writing and reading because I think that there's something very unnatural about a lot of these intellectual tasks that are set before us every day. Like we, we definitely did not evolve to write emails for six hours a day, but that's more or less a necessity of modern life for most people. And stimulants really help with sustained periods of writing and reading. I think that they, I think a lot of what is typically diagnosed as ADHD may just be a sort of aversion to this very unnatural need to sit in front of a computer writing and reading nonstop for multi-hour stretches. They essentially make that activity less boring. Yes, they make it less boring, and I think they allow it to not only be less boring, but more interesting as well. Sure. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because it seems like people have been using tobacco for a long time, and you know, if you think about like the indigenous cultures that started using tobacco, like in the Americas, um, do you think they were using it for the same reasons? Like they were getting bored while they were hunting or just like sitting around waiting for stuff to happen? I, I mean, I can't imagine that yeah, tribal I mean, life is that stimulating all the time. Right. Yeah. I'm not an expert on the ethnobotany of tobacco, but my impression typically has been that indigenous groups that use tobacco revere it as a sacred plant and do not use it in a pattern that in any way resembles contemporary American use or, you know, there's, there isn't daily smoking of tobacco or it's not sanctioned as a advisable way to use it. It's used ceremonially during specific events and that's pretty much it. And I don't know if that was because of an awareness of its addictiveness or because of scarcity, which is something that doesn't exist in the same way for modern users. You know, you can have as much tobacco as you want. Um, but a lot of these sacred plants and fungi were scarce in the past. And so they had to be conserved and used by certain people at certain times. So I don't know exactly what, what rules govern the use of tobacco products, but my impression, even today in some, you know, in like Mazatec culture, a lot of people will grow tobacco on their property, but they don't use it every day. It's sometimes even used symbolically during ceremonies as a, like a, a powerful plant, but not necessarily something that they're consuming. Yeah. You hear stories about that, you know, doing large amounts of, of, uh, of tobacco in the form of smoke or something can adu induce visuals and um, I think you remember, I remember you saying at some point that you've had an experience like that. Sure. Yeah. And then there's, yes, there's of course different species of tobacco and there's um, Nicotiana tobaccum, which is what is typically used in cigarettes. And then there's Nicotiana rustica, which has uh, higher levels of nicotine as well as some of these beta carboline alkaloids that uh, may add some additional potentially psychedelic flavor to the effect of the tobacco. Um, and so, yes, it seems that high dose use of Nicotiana rustica does have a potentially like visionary psychedelic effect, but also I haven't anal, I did try one of these preparations, but I didn't analyze it. And I've always wondered whether it contains something else in addition to 
the tobacco if there might have been some you know dmt containing plant for example or something of that nature but i did have this kind of pulse of of interesting closed eye visuals that was not something i'd ever experienced previously so it may be that that's a result of you know a very high dose sudden effect sudden onset there's a lot of things that are you know of course different based on the dose it's consumed and the rapidity of onset or it may have been because of some other components in these rapé snuffs that were becoming increasingly popular a couple of years ago. I don't know if they're still kind of in the, the United States shamanism circuit the way they once were. I never get invited to those parties, so <laughs> you're going to have to let me know. But while we're on the topic of kind of uh, nicotine generally before we kind of dive into um, other kinds of, of drugs at large, um, I wonder if you have uh, seen or, or followed any of the recent work by Dr. Paul Newhouse about using nicotine uh, as a way to combat some of the uh, onset of symptoms uh, in, in Alzheimer's patients and whether you think it's possible maybe more generally to use nicotine as, uh, as a medicine, not just for smoking cessation. Yes, absolutely. And it seems pretty clear that the incidence of Parkinson's disease is reduced among smokers and they don't know exactly why, but that's a pretty exciting little piece of information. Um, and it's not because they die earlier for anybody who's wondering because they have control for that. Yeah. So stuff like that's very promising. Um, it seems to improve memory. It seems to be something that under certain circumstances could be very beneficial, maybe if not nicotine, various derivatives. I mean, there's a lot a lot to work with in that space. And, and so when you, so you obviously believe it, nicotine has benefits, um, whether for cognitive, uh, performance or medicinal or otherwise. Um, so why take a drug holiday from nicotine? It's a good question. One is diminishing returns. Um, I find that with most things, um, there is, it's good to take a break. You want to use it for a period and then you want to stop for a little while as well to reduce any tolerance that you might have. And it you know, restores the interesting properties of the drug that first made you want to use it. Um, the other thing is I think drugs are amazing scapegoats for almost everyone, even people that like drugs. I find myself falling into this trap all the time of thinking, oh, well, you know, this, this nicotine it used to help, but it's not good anymore, and I need to cut that out. Or maybe, you know, cannabis, maybe it helps me sleep, but maybe it's interfering with the architecture of my sleep, and maybe I'm actually less rested, and maybe I would be happier if I never used cannabis. And I think it's important to experimentally stop taking drugs just so you can learn that they're probably not actually the cause of your problems, but just to rule it out. Because what I find when I am sober for long periods of time is that most of the problems that I was previously blaming on this or that drug uh, still exist, but at least I understand now that whatever the problem was goes deeper than the nicotine gum or smoking a little bit of cannabis before bed. Wherever you go, there you are. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Um, I think, and I remember last time we met up, you were taking a drug holiday from both nicotine and cannabis yeah. simultaneously. So you like to take a complete drug holiday, it seems from everything all at once, not 
eliminating things piece by piece or it kind of just depends on how you're feeling? Yeah, I think it's good to eliminate everything you can unless it's medically necessary. Of course, I wouldn't suggest someone not take, you know, insulin. insulin. <laughs> yes, exactly. But um, yeah, I think it's good if only because it allows you to stop blaming the drugs and you can see, oh, was it really the cannabis that was the problem or was it really alcohol or was it really this or that? Um, I think it's, you know, you need to get a sort of baseline reading on who you are periodically and then you can add these things back into the equation and see how things change. That makes sense to me. Yeah, I mean, the word drug holiday or the phrase drug holiday um, has kind of interesting connotations, but um, I think the, like where it, where it comes from is the idea that like sometimes when you're taking a, you know, a, a medicinal, like a pharmaceutical drug that you kind of accumulate some, uh, potential for chronic toxicities. And by taking some time off, you can sort of, you know, eliminate those, um, while still retaining whatever the benefits that you're deriving from those drugs are. Um, and it sounds like that, that could be the case with this as well as, you know, by taking time off from the drug, you're, um, you know, you may be, you know, even if it's like, you know, a mental block that you're having about, um, is this drug causing some, some side effects? Um, and you know, you get back on and, and, you know, it's even the, the benefits are even greater than, you know, they were when you, you know, just before you went on the drug holiday. Right. Yeah. And I think there's something really magical about nicotine when you first use it and you do lose that with daily use. So the question is, how do you have as much of that magic as possible? And I think you have it from periodic considered use, almost closer to this shamanic idea where you, you recognize that it's a very powerful medicine that can be used at certain times very beneficially and you use it maybe once a week or something like that when you're writing or when you're trying to start a new project and then you fully take advantage of the therapeutic properties of it that might otherwise be sort of diminished by daily use or at least you have that impression. The same I think is true of a lot of stimulants like amphetamine as well. Like if you use amphetamine every day, you don't feel, you're just using it to reduce the withdrawal of not using amphetamine after a pretty short period of time. But if you use amphetamine once a month or less, then you can have a kind of really amazing effect from it. Or you might end up whiteboarding out three new businesses, none of which makes sense upon <laughs> further reflection. Yes, that could also happen. Um, you know, not, not speaking from experience, but um, maybe we can uh, shift into a few questions about you. Sure. So how did you get into doing what it is that you do? I, I remember reading that you started contributing to Vice when you were in college, right? Yeah. I mean, I've always been very interested in drugs. I think it's a pretty fascinating area. And now everyone is, it, it seems like the world is sort of catching up. But it, even just a few years ago, a decade ago, a lot of these areas were more stigmatized. Psychedelics were not talked about as medicines in the same way that they are now. And it was an exciting time to start talking about things like that because it was all kind of starting to become more available due to the internet. So I wrote a lot about the gray market and also started making these documentaries and started working in a lab. That was another thing that kind of really broadened my understanding of this subject matter. And it's been fun because I've had this sort of anthropological element of getting to travel to these different countries and spend time with indigenous groups and observe the way that they interact with various medicinal plants or fungi. And 
I also get to work in a lab and synthesize chemicals and see that side of it. And also, you know, interview people that work in clandestine drug labs or law enforcement. And it's given me this sort of holistic understanding of the drug world that's been really beneficial. Like I'm very grateful, even though it's been a sort of scattered way of learning about the subject, I think it's been a really good way. So what would you say is the goal of the show? I think to show as many sides as possible, because, you know, if there's been any problem with the way drugs have been covered historically, it's been such a polarizing issue that you either have people that are just violently attacking the substances because they're so terrified of them. They feel that it's their moral responsibility to scare everyone away from using them. And in some instances, it may have even worked, but that's not the way that you want to prevent people from using drugs by lying to them and making them so afraid that they don't use them. That doesn't help society in the end. And it also interferes with drug policy because if everybody thinks that the reason not to do LSD is because it's going to damage your chromosomes, then maybe it seems like a good idea to make it illegal because it's dangerous and it could cause birth defects in the children of LSD users. So that's the right thing to do. But so I can see why journalists were eager to promote those sorts of narratives in the 1960s, but the end result is that people had all these horrible misconceptions about these drugs that have really powerful therapeutic effects. So I want to show as many sides as possible to show the benefits, but also to show the way these things actually exist, because you can go too far in the other direction as well, which is almost where we are right now, where everybody is so excited about the clinical use of psychedelics and everyone is talking about the work that's being done at Johns Hopkins or they're talking about, you know, this trial at NYU and this and that. And it turns out they're really medicines that you forget that the whole reason that people care about psychedelics in the first place is typically black market illegal use that the majority of profound psychedelic experiences that people have had have been crimes. And you want to acknowledge that that is the reality. That is the state of affair of affairs in 2019. So I, um, yeah, I want to show every side of it possible because I think they're all really interesting. The chemistry, the pharmacology, the clinical aspect, uh, maybe this is the least interesting part. And then of course, you know, the, the cultural aspect of seeing how these, drugs actually interact with the real world yeah i mean it's interesting that uh you mentioned sort of the 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 pendulum swinging in the other direction because it's like you know basically the only way that we can accept at least here in the u.s the use of um some of these substances is uh for for medicinal use and you know why do you think it's the case that we don't accept recreational use of um of substances other than you know tobacco and alcohol which sort of on the spectrum of of risk seem to be pretty harmful you know compared to some of these other substances yeah i don't know but i find it very troubling i find it extremely troubling because it creates a unfair interpretation of use even you know very recently the fda approved this intranasal ketamine preparation for treatment of depression and how do people typically use ketamine on the black market? They snort it. This is like a medical affirmation of something that a lot of non-medical users have known for decades. And so what about all those people that were doing what is essentially the exact same thing that the FDA just approved, but they were doing it decades ago or doing it the day before it was approved? Was that not medicinal just because the FDA hadn't yet said that that was something that could treat depression? It's a, it's a really 
bad way to think about things because it allows people to look down on non-medical use when the only barrier between medical and non-medical use in many of these instances is one of politics and policy. It's not truly a medical barrier. So it sounds like a lot of times it's just a matter of creating a diagnosis that the drug can treat. Um, you know, like not to say that these aren't legitimate medical issues, which, you know, they certainly are. Um, but you know, in some cases it's like, we don't accept that these drugs have a medicinal purpose until we have a diagnosis that, you know, the drug can actually help with. Right. And I think that medicalization can be damaging paradoxically because what if somebody says, you know, I'm, I'm nervous before a date and I want to take a benzodiazepine before that date because I'm really nervous about it. And you're not medicalizing it at all. You're just saying this is a, an isolated incident that is going to cause anxiety. I would like to take some kind of anti-anxiety medication beforehand. But there's no room for that in our current culture. You have to be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. And then you're told that there's something different about you. And in fact, you have to use these anxiolytic drugs maybe every day for the rest of your life. And you'll become miserably addicted. How is that a superior medical interpretation of it? what might may, maybe an isolated incident of anxiety. Yeah. Which people are essentially self-medicating anyway when they like have a drink or something before they go out. Of course. Yeah. So this kind of ties back into a theme that we've discussed, um, before when we were out, which was, um, it sounds like what you're getting at is that all of these drugs or most or many of these drugs have different places in life and maybe maybe the ideal form of use is to use many have a larger toolbox and use each thing with great respect and more occasionally uh, and that ties in because you said that often when you get recognized in public it's often a kind of drunk person who comes up to you and will say dude how are you still alive <laughs> and you said that that irritates you because you would say well what you would say, why, why are you surprised that I'm alive? Is that what you'd say? Well, yes, there's this absurd idea that drug use is somehow extremely dangerous. And again, this is like a some vestige of the scare reporting of the 80s and 90s and really still today where someone would think that it's amazing that you've consumed a drug. First of all, I don't know what these people have seen me do that was so dangerous. I mean, sometimes the traveling is dangerous, but I don't think I've ever done anything on camera that they would know of that is. No, we just, we always <laughs> laugh about the episode where you were forced to eat like 50 fish heads. <laughs> I chose, I chose, I chose thought, to eat 50 fish heads. Thought you might get food poisoning from that one. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That, okay. So yeah, I, I ate it. Not because of the drug. I ate a, a lovingly prepared fish dinner <laughs> among friends and I was just fine. So I'm, I'm not surprised that I survived that. There was, of course, I was a little bit afraid of ciguatera, which is this um, type of poisoning that occurs when eating certain typically large tropical fish. Um, and it's pretty horrifying. If you want to see some really frightening YouTube videos, you can see people crying, talking about how Ciguatera has destroyed their life. Um, 
how what it, what it, it causes it's insanity what, it, or something? It's, well, it's, it does it does very bizarre things to you. It actually uh, modulates trip channel functioning in such a way that your sense of hot and cold are reversed. So people report being unable to eat ice cream because it burns their lips so horribly. And it's such a potent neurotoxin that there are two case reports. I mean, I borderline don't believe this, but it is in the medical literature that show that it is the only instance that I'm aware of of a sexually transmissible poison. Are there two cases the people that had sex with each other? And poisoned someone else through sex. This has been reported twice in wow. separate articles anyway. So it's a very powerful, scary neurotoxin that seems ultra capable of crossing between organisms. And, um, and, and is also apparently an aphrodisiac. <laughs> I, I don't know <laughs> if you watch these YouTube videos, I don't think you'll think it's an aphrodisiac, but maybe for some people, it seems to cause a lot of vomiting and diarrhea and reversal of hot and cold. And it's sensation. not, it doesn't seem to be reversible. It seems to be a long term, like multi-year poisoning. It's, it's really terrifying. So that was what I was concerned about. And, but it didn't happen. You've been eating ice cream. I was completely almost fine. Every day. Yeah. And, but there, there's this attitude of, of fear of experimentation, which I think is damaging as well, where, you go to a psychiatrist and you say, I'm depressed. And they say, okay, here's this SSRI at this dose. Come back in a couple months if you don't like it. Not like, I think this sort of old fashioned model where you maybe go to a pharmacist and they give you a glass bottle full of the powder. And then you could, you know, titrate the dose and figure out what dosing frequency works best for you because we're all so different and if that doesn't work maybe try something else um but that's all discouraged it's even would be potentially considered abuse but i think that's the only way you can figure out what works well with some of those ssris and things they they reportedly take a while to take that's effect. true that's so, a good point yeah that's so, true so it might not work without keeping that in mind sure what do you what is your um opinion on these class of drugs because there is some criticism especially in recent years from some members of the psychiatric community that ssris actually don't really even work is that right sure yeah it's certainly become it really has always been a very controversial way of treating depression um i don't know that literature well enough to be able to make a really informed assessment i know that they work for some people. They clearly don't work for a substantial number of people as well. You have to be careful about which ones you're talking about because there's probably at least four that are approved in the United States, maybe more at this point. Sure. And, but yeah, it, it seems like it's not ideal if only because the onset of the therapeutic effect of two weeks is too long for most people. You do want something that has an immediate effect. And that's something again, that you typically will always see in non-medical use is people will gravitate towards substances that cause an immediate therapeutic effect. Nobody is taking something that takes two weeks before it sure. exerts any kind of. Well, which is kind of why this, this approval of ketamine was kind of such a breakthrough because it's something that does, you know, act pretty rapidly um, at least compared to any other marketed SSRI or antidepressant. Yes, it's a huge selling point. Absolutely. I don't know. I got to see for myself. <laughs> can I? Can I get some somewhere on the? Well, I was actually just reading the drug label for it, and yeah, so was I. And it was actually pretty disappointing because it was like you have to actually be in a doctor's office and you have to be there for like two or three hours. 
you know, before and after treatment so that they can like, you know, make sure that you're not, um, having any kind of weird, you know, dissociative effects. And it's not even like MDMA where the doctor used to do it with you. Right. So at least you guys would both kind of be on the same page. Doesn't sound like it. Yeah. I mean, maybe if you have a cool doctor, they would, you know, well, if the doctor also had treatment resistant depression and <laughs> <laughs> it's timing their doses to be in sync with you. Yeah. I mean, the whole thing is kind of bizarre. I, like there are these nasal inhalers. Each produces two squirts of ketamine that are 14 milligrams. And then you're supposed to use several of these inhalers over the course of a session, each of which costs like several hundred dollars. So you like a year of treatment with this product, I think it could cost like 60 or $70,000. Like it's pretty wild, this whole model. Well, I saw your tweet uh, from earlier today or yesterday where you were saying that people were not referring to it as ketamine, right? Right. And that bothers me. And, and then people, of course, misinterpreted what I was saying and said, you think that there can't be pharmacological differences between two enantiomers of a drug? Of course, there can be pharmacological and routinely are pharmacological differences between two enantiomers of a drug. But what I found remarkable about the way this is being reported on is that they're in some instances saying that it isn't ketamine or that it's a chemical cousin of ketamine, or that it's ketamine-like, when not only has S enantiomer ketamine been used medicinally in the past, just as an anesthetic, um, so this isn't new. It's a old method of administration. People have been snorting ketamine for a long time, so this idea that they can somehow pretend that this is totally different from the ketamine that you've heard of in the past, where people were using it as a club drug. This is something totally new. It just seems really irresponsible from the perspective of the reporting. And it denies the fact that people have been doing this exactly like that for decades. Have you yourself used ketamine? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what was, what is the experience like for someone like myself who has not used ketamine before? It's a, a bit hard to describe um, because it is, you know, it's, it's classified as a dissociative anesthetic and dissociative is a decent word for the experience. You are not typically, it's dose dependent, but at higher doses, let's say 100 milligrams intramuscular, you're not interacting with your environment anymore. It doesn't really matter where you are. You have um, gone inside yourself. You might not know whether or not your eyes are open and the experiences tend to be for me very abstract. They don't, sometimes they have a dreamlike quality, but they're even more abstract than a dream. They don't necessarily have a narrative component. It can sometimes be almost more like a screensaver or something like that, where you're, you know, traveling down a tube or there's a sense of turning pages. And again, these are very abstract things that can't even be verbally articulated in any meaningful way. But yeah, maybe the sense that your consciousness is a book and pages are being turned or that um, you're seeing, uh, I often have like a somewhat paranoid sense that I have been given access to privileged knowledge that underlies the construction of the universe or like that this is like oh this is this is like the creation network this is the root channel from which consciousness emerges and i'm seeing this core kernel of consciousness or something like that but again very abstract and how long does that last it's pretty short acting i mean that was one of the main incentives when they were developing ketamine is it's a chemical relative of PCP, PCP had a longer duration and so it caused these emergence phenomena where people would come out of the 
anesthetized state, but they were still under the influence of the drug and they would create problems in the hospital that have to be subdued, that have to be re-anesthetized. So the idea was to create something that was metabolized more rapidly than PCP. And that's what one of the things that, although ketamine I think was actually discovered serendipitously, that was one of the things that went behind its approval was the short duration. So you're in and out of it in about, let's say, between one and two hours. Okay. Well, that's still a fairly long time to believe that you're on a page that's turning consistently oh, for yes. two hours. Yeah. It's, it's like, it's, and it's also, um, what I think is really interesting about it is that it is a drug that is addictive for people under certain circumstances, but it's not like amphetamine or like other classically addictive drugs. I would not even go so far as to say that it is a euphoric drug. It is almost a lateral shift into a different type of consciousness that is very strange, very interesting, but not necessarily reinforcing or euphoric in any conventional sense of the word. So you don't jump out of that state and then look at your friend and say, let's do that again. No. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, that makes sense then. Yeah. So that sounds like a very strange experience. Um, <laughs> what, what's, what's the strangest experience you've had under the you know, influence of a mind-altering drug? The strangest, I don't know, these superlatives, it can be a little bit difficult. So to, name one in your top 30. My top 30, okay, that's easier. Um, one very strange experience that I had was with a hypnotic drug that was almost approved by Merck and Lundbeck Pharmaceuticals called Geboxidol and made it to phase three clinical trials and then supposedly failed some efficacy measure and also was causing hallucinations in some people. So they pulled it from the market because this was right at the height of the Ambien although things actually got much worse for Ambien with Roseanne later, but um, this was during the, the <laughs> first the first wave of Ambien scare where there was uh, Tiger Woods's like mistress had spoken to these tabloids and said that they had crazy Ambien sex and, um, and what, there was some other, and then some congressman or something had driven into a building in the middle of the night. And yeah, it seemed like it was a scapegoat for a lot of aberrant behavior. Right. And also probably, although of course people use drugs as scapegoats, in this instance, it's such a powerful deliriant that I do think it most likely caused some of the behavior as well. Because... You can make some money as an expert witness. <laughs> yeah, yes. Well, you know, I want to be fair to these people because I, I thought, not that I, I'm not like pro Roseanne necessarily. I don't agree with what Roseanne did by any means, but I didn't like that everyone were, everyone was saying these things like, you know, it was inside her all along because you wouldn't have done that unless it was inside you. It's like, well, what about these reports of people buttering their cigarettes? What about these reports of people painting their houses in the middle of the night? Was that inside them? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Today's the day. I'm painting the house. The color has been bothering me for years. So I don't know. But anyway, I think that it was 
something having to do with all of those fears about approving a new delirient hypnotic that caused Merck and Lundbeck to pull gaboxidol from the market. But I managed to get my hands on a supply of gaboxidol from Denmark um, around the time that the clinical trials were going on. And I analyzed it and it was bona fide material. And so I would periodically use that chemical, which it happens to be a conformationally constrained derivative of muscimol, the chemical in Amanita muscaria mushrooms. And I would periodically use that to sleep and it would just send me to sleep. So there was nothing to report that was all that interesting. But then I was in Tokyo once and did take it at what would have been the equivalent of 2 p.m. New York time. And it just really was a, a very unexpected delirium. And it, I think, again, what, what is so interesting about a lot of these different classes is people think that everything is about, you know, how good was it? How hedonistic was it? Well, it's almost like I, th I think of these things more like trying different foods. Maybe it's not necessarily about whether or not it's good in some hierarchy of goodness. It's about seeing what's out there and deciding what you do or don't like. And so this is like a new psychological territory to explore. So ketamine is whether it's good or bad, it's different. And it's something that after you've experienced it, you can add that to your psychological vocabulary and say, that's a type of experience that exists and it's interesting. And now I know about it and maybe it will give me some additional empathy for people with schizophrenia or something, or maybe it says something about psychopathology in some way, or maybe not, maybe it's just a weird experience and that's enough. Or it lets out whatever it is that's inside you. Or that, yes, that as well. So that's how I felt about this this experience, where it was, it was like, oh, here's a new type of consciousness I've never experienced before. It's not necessarily good, but it's completely different. I feel that I am now a passive observer in my own consciousness, and that all of my thoughts are being driven by something outside of myself at a speed that seems incomprehensibly fast, and um, and it was very unexpected. So here's a question that I've often wondered about you and other psychonauts in general, if you agree with that term or not, I don't know. I don't know about that term. Okay. Well, <laughs> if, you'll, if you'll indulge me, okay, sure. um, you have now had such a storied history ingesting all of these substances that most people have no frame of reference for, at least don't have the large catalog catalog of experiences that you do. Do you feel like you can be objective in your measurement because now Hamilton at whatever age you are versus Hamilton 10, seven years ago, I've, you know, I've, you see this in people who have done LSD many times versus someone who's only done it once or twice that there's an ability to kind of center yourself and remind yourself that, Oh, I'm actually experiencing the effects of a drug. You know, this might not be, um, I might not be caught up in like, you know, a wizard spell or, or whatever. Some people can convince themselves that they're in. So do you worry about that and, and that affecting your ability to be objective in your experience? I would not say that I worry about it too much because it's really impossible to say either way without a control Hamilton that hasn't done any. There are several control Hamiltons that have, you know, maybe only done that one thing one time before. And this is true of all experience in life, not necessarily just the use of drugs. It's really hard to say, was this class did this class change me or did traveling to this country change me without a control? You just don't know what the causal relationships are between really any events in your life. And so it's very hard to say, but I do know that, yeah, you know, a, a history of not only trying many of these things myself, but also interviewing countless people who have often had substance abuse disorders or 
even just people who had really positive experiences has changed my interpretation of certain things and has definitely given me a bias. So, you know, I'm biased against opioids simply because I have seen so many people that have problems with them that if I try an opioid, even if I like it, there's part of me that would think, um, nah, it's probably, if, even if it's good, it's not worth it. It's not good. It's not, it's not, it's potentially not worth the risk, not good enough. I'm not interested. End of story. So that I think that there is this kind of like medical overlay that exists where I'm, I'm never unconscious of the potential toxicity. And that also happens with new, new substances. If you're investigating something that's never been tried before, that is part of your experience. It's going to be totally different than the way that somebody interacts with a pharmaceutical product. And I think that's one of the weirdest things about pharmaceuticals is you, most people approach them with this assumption that they're completely safe because they've gone through clinical trials and other people have used them for a few years. So why not take Stratera every day forever? Or why not take Prozac for the rest of your life? Um, so that also changes it. So there's no, it's not, yes, it is different for me, but I think it's different for everyone because everyone is experiencing these substances and really everything in their life with a, an overlay of all of the knowledge that will necessarily bias them toward the experience in one way or another. Do you think there's an inverse correlation between how euphoric a drug is and how dangerous it is? Or, or um, Because it seems like you're in kind of a, a safe space to some extent by focusing a lot of your time and, and research and efforts on um, psychedelics because those aren't frequently as abused right 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 well i think cannabis is absurdly euphoric i think cannabis is i think cannabis is one of the but then again you have to wonder do i like cannabis or do i think that it's so euphoric and fantastic because i'm coming to it also with this knowledge that relative to other euphorian substances this one is relatively innocuous and is potentially even beneficial under certain circumstances depending on how you want to think about it and that allows me to remove some of my neurotic objections and fears that would otherwise taint the experience yeah i mean it's it's interesting because um you know uh, a lot of people will you know scientists will will argue that that's sort of one of the reasons why um nicotine for example has such a strong you know behavioral addiction component to it is because um you know the the sort of the properties of nicotine that make it um you know beneficial for cognitive enhancement that you know improve working memory and learning actually improve this sort of ability to to have a conditioned response to positive stimuli in life so when you have a cigarette usually it's at a specific time right when you're um, stressed out or when you're you know enjoying something or when you just need a break and you tend to you tend to associate the the, the sensation of nicotine you know even though it could be um, in a vacuum you know a pretty sort of neutral experience um, albeit different from you know how you normally experience reality um, because you're associating with all these moments that creates sort of the positive um, the you know the positive experience of using it um, is that something that that you feel to be true with you know other psychoactive drugs not necessarily because nicotine again it's it's unique in that it's culturally integrated into this continuous use throughout the day maybe uh, caffeine would be another example and cannabis right. for some people but it, it occupies an interesting 
niche that you don't necessarily see with like LSD or something like that, um, where the use pattern tends to be intermittent, maybe even just less than once a year. Um, so I'm not sure. Yeah. I mean, I guess, um, that makes sense because you're, you're using it so often that you can create this kind of like this learned response, this like Pavlovian response pretty quickly. Um, whereas like probably very few people use LSD frequently enough or even just enough for that to happen. Um, and I, I think people like these experiences that sort of serve as punctuation throughout the day. Actually, right. when I first started drinking Soylent, I remember one of the first things that I thought was interesting about it was that I lost a certain punctuation in the day where typically you have meals and the meals are the breaks. And then if you are sipping on a liquid meal throughout the day, there's no reason to ever stop working. And I think nicotine also serves as almost like a pharmacological meal for some people where it's their excuse. They can go out after dinner. They don't need to sit at the table. They want to get up. They can go and have their nicotine break and it's culturally and socially permitted. Um, and there's very few other drugs that are quite like that. In fact, none. It's unique. There's coffee breaks to some extent. But even those, you don't go outside. You have to remain in this social sphere. Nicotine is one of the only things where you can say, like, goodbye, everyone. I need to be alone for a minute now. <laughs> what do you think about um, microdosing? Because you used LSD as an example of something that would be more episodic. But now it's, I don't know, maybe it doesn't seem to be as popular as it was a couple of years ago, at least in terms of people writing about it. Yes. Do you think that that has... Um, value or is interesting or well there's recently a, a study on dmt microdosing it came out pretty i think maybe just a couple of weeks ago in rodents that i thought was really cool i need to look at it more carefully before commenting on its validity but it seemed to to show a lot of like antidepressant effects if i remember correctly and you know i think microdosing is one of these things that it's this giant nebulous entity where first of all Anyone that's using, or virtually anyone that's using LSD microdoses, they don't know what dose they're using because LSD is a black market commodity that's laid on blotter paper. And the people are making a totally false assumption that each hit of that blotter paper contains exactly 100 micrograms of LSD. Based on what, if anything, I see nothing but evidence that it typically contains far less than that. Well, they're financially motivated to have less, right? Right. Yeah, and yeah. 100 micrograms is a lot. And then also, what salt? There's different salts. If it's you know, if it's a fumarate salt, is it the stoichiometric salt? Is it the hemi salt? Anyway, you can go on and on about these different variables that aren't measured. So nobody knows what the dose is that they're taking. So it makes it hard to know if the microdosing that one person describes is the same as the microdosing that another person describes. And are they, what purposes are they doing and how frequently some people may actually be tripping slightly. Some people define a microdose as a sub psychedelic experience. And then are you going to compare LSD to psilocybin? And are those even the appropriate substances? They're, they just happen to be the most available psychedelics, but I think that there's almost certainly other psychedelics that may not even necessarily have to be used at a microdose. They may simply be less potent psychedelics um, that are just as well, if not better suited. An example would be a drug that Shulgin created called Ariadne. And um, not How a. Can you spell that? <laughs> a R I A D N E. Um, also called alpha ethyl 2CD and not a controlled substance. And it was one of a few substances that this chemist Alexander Shulgin created that actually were 
of interest to pharmaceutical companies. So it was taken through some preclinical research and even given to humans as a potential treatment for dementia. It never made it to the market, but it was well before this microdosing craze began. It was kind of that idea. What if we were to harness some of the mood enhancing properties of psychedelics at low doses and just make that the therapeutic effect it may have the pharmacology hasn't been looked at very carefully so it may actually not be a 5-ht2a agonist it may have some other type of activity but assuming that it's a low potency 5-ht2a agonist that's an example of a drug that isn't being microdosed that produces a microdose type experience or ibogaine is another one that um, has really interesting pharmacodynamics low doses have actually been used as a pharmaceutical in france it has a an energizing effect and you could go on and on. There's a lot of these things that are potentially beneficial. So I think that like my major objections to this whole microdosing thing are the lack of specificity and precision in the definitions that are used by people, the lack of analytical verification and dosing understanding, and that people are assuming that LSD and psilocybin containing mushrooms are the only two ways to do it when that's probably just the tip of the iceberg. Sure, but by definition, like these drugs are very difficult to study in that way right. because they're elite, they're controlled substances. So, in an ideal world, you would want to study these in a you know controlled clinical setting. Um, but you know there 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 are very few people in this country or even in the world that have the ability to to do that. Right. Yeah, you know, it's such a, it's an interesting time because if you look at older medical literature, it was once routine for people to do self-experiments. When you look at, you know, the first um, research that was done with barbiturates, self-experiments done by psychiatrists who had insomnia and they wanted to see, does it work? Um, and you see that again and again and again throughout medical history at, uh, at Janssen Pharmaceuticals. It was routine for chemists to, to try the compounds that they had recently synthesized to see if it had a therapeutic effect. Um, and in the, the sort of fashion in scientific literature was to incorporate a bit of a narrative component to many of these reports. So you might say, you know, this is the synthesis, this is the melting point, this is, you know, whatever behavioral measure in animals, and this is what a patient said. And it's not just a like a, a sterile statistical analysis of how they did on this or that rating scale. It's a little story. And I find those little narrative reports so helpful. And you don't really see those in the scientific literature anymore. But what you do see is them everywhere else. You see them all over the internet. So maybe you can't find that in a nature article, but maybe you will see it on Reddit and you could say, well, there isn't any analytical verification. You can make all the objections that I just made to microdosing and say, you don't know. And that's true. But I think that within this enormous body of bioassays of self-reported drug experiences that you can, you know, kind of average things out and make some really interesting assessments of new drugs that would otherwise be million dollar data points that would require immense amounts of regulatory approval before one person could say this new psychedelic is psychedelic or this new dissociative is dissociative. So I think we have to maybe alter the way that this information is sampled which is again why I, I encourage people to be as precise as possible in dosing and do whatever they can in their power to know the identity of the materials that they're using so that when they do report this material, it can be used by other people and can contribute to the body of psychopharmacological knowledge. 
That's uh, kind of reminiscent of uh, Sammy's gripe against that company that makes that anti-aging pill, right? That their their argument is that they're running essentially a, a study by unwilling participants who are purchasing the supplement from them, and they're going to see in 20, 30 years if it has an effect. Is that the idea? Yeah. And we're, is there a reason that we're not saying the name of it? I don't know. I just, okay, okay. I just don't want to be advertising it too yeah, inflammatory well, we also don't okay. want to throw dirt on okay sure 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 fair enough that company but um yeah i mean it, it obviously people will um work within the constraints that you know society imposes on them um and some of those constraints are there for good reason you know it's not okay to make anti-aging claims on a substance that you know you're relying on data from like yeast to um you know to to basically, you know, market this product. Um, but at the same time, you know, the F there is no FDA approved, you know, or FDA regulated indication for aging, right? Because right. the FDA doesn't, doesn't recognize aging as a disease, which I think it should. <laughs> you disagree. I don't disagree, but I think that it would be a complete mess to try to get that recognized as a disease. I understand why they don't. And, it's not so much, aging isn't Seems my quantifiable. Oh, it is. I mean, yeah, it's, it's definitely quantifiable via, you know, s certain markers, but, um, like age, yeah, like so age, age is so, a great so one. Why, yeah. So why the, <laughs> yes. why the mess? I mean, people either live longer on average or they don't. Because it would, it would entail like a really profound paradigm shift in the way medicine is practiced in the United States where it is fundamentally about treatment of disease and not the betterment of well people. And so where do you stop then if that, once you open that door, I think a lot of interesting things that actually ultimately would treat disease would be discovered, but it would change everything about the way that we understand medicine. Well, it's interesting you say that because I think that the opposite is occurring to some extent right now, which is there are some anti-aging clinics where aging people can go and get hormones like testosterone or estrogen and have their hormones balanced. And, uh, from what I hear, these people tend to feel healthier, look healthier, but they often will maybe drop dead, um, of a heart attack, for instance, maybe earlier than they otherwise would have, but their well being is increased. And so I think, you know, there's some individual calculus, there's some calculus on the part of the individual that needs to be done. Sure. Absolutely. Do you, um, feel comfortable with death? Um, I would say that, yes, I feel pretty comfortable with my own death. I wouldn't say that I'm especially comfortable with the death of people I love. I don't know exactly how you psychologically work through something like that, but yeah, I, I would say that I'm probably relative to most people, not especially afraid of death, but it, it you know, it, it changes with time. And that's, I think one of the most amazing and weird and reliable therapeutic effects of psychedelics is like, I don't wake up in the morning and think, geez, like my fear of death is really weighing down on me today. It's not, I sometimes do really. Oh yeah. Like he probably doesn't do enough psychedelics. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not, not as, as much as Hamilton, but, but it, it's not something that I think of as a problem. I don't think I've ever had that thought. Like, I really need to do something about my fear of death right now. It's really messing me up. Um, but once it's gone, 
you realize it was there and that you feel better and lighter as a result of it being gone. And psychedelics, I think by making you feel sometimes only for a moment, sometimes not at all, but sometimes only for a moment, they might make you feel like you're going to die. They'll, <laughs> they'll give you, they'll give you a feeling yeah, I mean, for a moment even where, cannabis. You, where you get a little bit afraid and you think, all right, I'm a little bit afraid and I may have done something stupid <laughs> and this may have been a mistake. And now the guy in the bar was trying to tell me and now I'm going to die. Well, and it's like, yeah, with, with anything else, like, you know, it's, it takes practice to get over your fear. So maybe you just have to practice dying a bunch of times and you won't be scared of it anymore. Right. And then, and then you don't die typically in my experience, I right. have not died for some people they die, but it's rare. So <laughs> you, you don't die. And then, Yes, you have a little bit of practice and you feel better in the wake of it. And um, with some of these psychedelics, DPT is one in particular that was used clinically in the treatment of a lot of people with, with terminal cancer in the 1970s. Um, it really seems to have an absolutely remarkable effect. It helps people come to terms with their death. And then you might think, well, is that clinically necessary? Is that important? I would say absolutely, because then it's not just you, it's your family as well. So these people that might have children, have wives, have parents that are worried about them to see that they're at peace um, can be tre tremendously therapeutic for everyone involved. So I think that's one of the most amazing things about psychedelics. So is that why, I mean, you mentioned DPT, I am only assuming based on its similarity in letters to DMT that there might be related. Yes. Um, okay, great. So yeah. already Dipropyl off to a good start. instead of dimethyl. Okay, perfect. Yeah. So in my more uh, layman's understanding of psychedelics, it seems like DMT is always held up as the, oh, sure, bro you've done DMT or you've done, or sorry, you've done LSD or you've done psilocybin via mushrooms or you've done whatever, but have you done DMT? Why, why is DMT held to in the, as this sort of Holy grail or rite of passage among people that consume psychedelics? I think there's a number of reasons. One is the raw intensity and the profundity of the visual hallucinations are arguably unparalleled among any other psychedelics but i think within the umbrella of classical psychedelics which are serotonergic you have two kind of archetypal experiences one is very personal environmental ego oriented associative visual and i think that dmt typifies that type of experience and then you have another type that tends to be more dissociative less impersonal, non-ego oriented, and things like 5-MeO-DMT or even DPT, where the experience is not about you, it's universal. And it could even be interchangeable with other people. It's not about your family or your experiences or the people that you love. It's about life. And so DMT, I think, is really a great example of this kind of personal, environmental, ego oriented, psychedelic experience that is so dazzling that its reputation is sort of deserved. It's a truly remarkable substance and it's so simple. And the fact that it's, you know, at least found in rat brains and may have some role, though probably not, but who knows, I guess there's always emerging work being done by Jimo Borjigan and Steve Barker on this subject where they're finding new potential biological roles for DMT. So, 
you know, it, there's just something about it that's very special. You hear it's released in the brain when you die. Is that just an urban legend? It's, it is, it is an urban legend, but apparently there's some stuff on the horizon coming out of that same lab at the University of Michi- Michigan that's going to potentially lend some support. Although, even if it is, it almost seems like an odd side issue if that because whether it is or is not the experience is remarkable whether it is endogenous or not the experience is remarkable it's kind of a side issue but it adds to the mystique of dmt it seems like if you die and your brain is just leaking all sorts of things all over the place that there might be some sort of combinatorial chemistry where a lot of different things could be found oh definitely definitely they have a whole proposed mechanism that the idea is that it it um via some activity at sigma receptors might increase cell survival under hypoxic conditions. And that, that could be the explanation for why people view their lives in, you know, when they have near death experiences or something that, and why it might be selected for evolutionarily, because maybe between two organisms, one that has a near death DMT release and one doesn't the near death DMT release also promotes survival. And so those people are more likely to reproduce and, thus it has become part of our physiology although it's romantic but theoretically possible yeah yeah we'll we'll see but i almost feel like that's just a side issue because even if none of that turns out to be the case dmt is such a interesting substance and of course it's also found in so many different plants such a simple powerful substance you probably are and you smoke it can smoke it or of course ayahuasca is when you dmt is combined it. with a monoamine oxidase inhibitor and consumed orally and probably it can be snorted. One of the few people on the planet that's probably smoked dmt more times than they've smoked a cigarette it's uh, i don't wonder i don't know but it's true <laughs> yeah <laughs> um and okay so we'll, we'll let you go soon but have a few more questions if you don't mind um one is do you feel like people have a fundamental right to control their own brain chemistry absolutely yeah and i think it's very disturbing to imagine otherwise i think all these attempts by the government to try to interfere with people's cognitive liberty are just a a horrible horrible exercise and it just gets worse and worse you know there's always some state that is proposing a bill where they say oh actually we're going to go a step further and we're not just going to control drugs we're going to control receptors we're going to control entire pharmacology so any exogenous agonist at the cb1 receptor is by that fact illegal what what a horrible way what a short-sighted way to deal with these problems related to abuse instead of educating people to try to make entire pharmacologies illegal and it is a slippery slope and we've been playing this game for such a long time Every year, if you look at how many drugs are controlled, it's dozens every year. People, it's so easy to lose track. People barely even talk about it anymore. And because it's often drugs in stigmatized classes like opioids and cannabinoids, people are less inclined to speak out to defend these substances because who wants to be the guy that's out there like picketing to prevent the prohibition of cyclopropyl fentanyl or, sure. or whatever. But who knows what kind of unique pharmacology cyclopropyl fentanyl might have. It might have some kind of interesting bias signaling at the mu opioid receptor that could actually make it really valuable medically. And now that's just off the table as a scientific tool. So 
you, Hamilton, if you ruled the world with an iron fist, huh. you would make all drugs legal? Yes, I, of course, would want some regulation in terms of the ones that are being sold for human consumption. But yes, I, I don't think that can, the Controlled Substances Act has done anything at all. So can David at 10 years old go up to the pharmacy counter and buy heroin? That's the sort of control that I think would probably be beneficial, is especially things to protect children. So age gate it and have a certain amount of purity. But I mean, to some extent, you know, what's the difference between a 17 and a half year old and an 18 year old in terms of their brain chemistry, right? I mean, the problem that I would foresee, and I, I largely agree with you that I think we, we need less prohibition um, and, and less government involvement. But it seems like, I mean, if you use cigarettes as an example, uh, people who smoke tend to be uh, statistically from uh, backgrounds that are more disadvantaged. And it seems like a lot of these drugs might affect, you know, I mean, you can see this with the opioid crisis. A lot of these, these drugs affect people who maybe their day-to-day -day lives isn't so great and then they use a chemical to escape and then it kind of gets ahead of them. How do you control for, for that? I mean, what if it just becomes the opiate of the masses becomes the opiate of the masses? But then you further disadvantage those same people through prohibition because now not only are they disadvantaged, now they can go to prison and have any future job opportunities ruined by their criminal record. Mm -hmm. So that's not the way. Education is the only way forward. And I agree, it's hard to say what is the difference between a 17 and a half year old and an 18 year old. And really, I think even these sorts of hard limits create these illusions that drinking after 21, I don't think anyone actually thinks this, but you might if you were from Mars or something, think <laughs> that drinking after 21 is good for you and drinking before 21 is not good for you. Um, and you know what you really want is a society where people have a nuanced understanding of these subjects for their own benefit. You know, it's really unfortunate the way that drug education has been conducted in the United States because it doesn't even end at illegal drugs. It also applies to pharmaceuticals. So everyone is so mixed up and confused about everything that um, it, it almost certainly contributes to most of the drug problems that we encounter. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that the gateway drug hypothesis, um, which has been, you know, uh, debunked in many ways is, is interesting from what you said at the beginning of the podcast, because you said that, uh, some of these, you know, just say no, be very prohibitive about all drugs, I think might contribute largely to, uh, people trying more new dangerous drugs, because if you hear cannabis is going to make you go insane and then you have a moment with some friends in your teenage years and you smoke cannabis and then you realize, well, that didn't make us go insane. So maybe everything else that they said was BS too. Right. Right. And this sort of naughty image that it's naughty. Your parents, your parents won't like if you do drugs because it's bad. It's, it's bad. And it's like, well, who are you? There's no glory in acting like a fuck up. There's no benefit to hurting yourself. You should recognize that these things are better if you use them responsibly. You can actually drive tremendous benefit. And I think that's one of the tragedies of a lot of people that kind of go off the rails a little bit is then they get into a program with AA where suddenly they think that if they smoke a little bit of DMT, which would probably enrich their life, although I don't want to make any categorical statements about sure. what DMT will do for people, but let's say it's hypothetically possible it might enrich their life, but they're afraid they're going to relapse and be in a gutter drinking again. And this came from this very extreme 
abuse oriented relationship that people tend to have with drugs. Whereas I think if people understood like there's no, yeah, there's no benefit to using these things stupidly. It'll just hurt yourself. There's in the same way that no one wants to eat food or few people want to eat food self-destructively because you understand that there's an immediate or not necessarily immediate, but there's a consequence down the line. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, what about, um, if you have a question, you can go for it. No. So I was curious, um, you largely try most of the substances that you depict on your show. Is there a kind of a, a no-go, a line that you, in your experiment, self-experimentation, do not cross? And, and what is that line? I would say that one line is simply, I don't want to use the substance. There's this ridiculous misconception that people have, which is that I somehow am using the substances because this is like my chance to use the substances. Um, whereas I can assure anyone that the most expensive, most difficult imaginable way to use a drug is to make a documentary about using that <laughs> drug. If you, if you want to use a drug, definitely use it without making a documentary film. Yeah. yeah, it's just not a good, it's not a loophole. It doesn't make anything easier for anyone. Sure. So, but people will somehow have this idea of like, how do I get that job? And it's like, what job are you referring to? Making documentaries? I don't know. Just <laughs> make a documentary with your friends and then see if you can find a distributor. But, um, but if the question is, how do I use a drug? Then that's really easy. But the rule is that I do want to communicate something through the use. It's not about the actual use. It's not about getting high. So in the case of salvia, the reason that I wanted to use it was just to show that what people had previously seen in terms of salvia use with people smoking it from a bong and going crazy and jumping out a window is not necessarily the way it has to be, that that's a product of our society in a certain usage pattern, but done in a traditional context, it can actually be a beautiful, I hesitate to use the word spiritual, but beautiful experience that um, is part of a really rich tradition. Or with mushrooms to again show that these people aren't necessarily flipping out and having a, a wacky psychedelic experience, but it's actually a very calm low dose experience. It's based on Christian tradition and it's completely different from what you might expect. Same thing with San Pedro. That's all low dose. So one reason that I'm doing it is to just educate people. But if there's nothing to show, if there's no educational value in my own use, then I won't do it. But you might do some of these things on your own, not in front of the camera. To understand, yeah, because, you know, if if I had never used PCP, for example, then I, I might think the PCP is as dangerous as everybody else thinks it is. But it's only because I have a personal understanding of having used, you know, a specific dose, five milligrams of PCP hydrochloride under carefully controlled conditions that I can say, no, this is not so different from ketamine. And a lot of these supposed problems associated with PCP are really problems associated with poverty and with unmeasured doses. Dosing, yeah. that, that makes sense. That makes sense. What about um, crocodile? Is it as bad as everybody no, says? No, come on. Well, I, I don't know. I mean, you probably wouldn't take that drug. So what's well, different no, about not, that? Well, okay, what is different about that is that that is a totally impure reaction mixture. So I'm not going to do, again, anything self-destructive. I don't have any need to just like hurt myself by taking some phosphorus containing garbage that some guy mixed up and inject that into my veins for there's no but if it were purified desomorphine at a known dose and there were a reason to use it which i don't think there is because all signs point to it being more or less similar to just morphine shitty morphine yeah maybe or not necessarily even shitty morphine maybe just 
like morphine. Um, so, so I don't know what would be learned. I mean, maybe out of personal curiosity, but I don't think from like a filmmaking perspective, there would be anything all that great about me using pure desomorphine. And then, yeah, I don't have any urge to do things that are self-destructive. Is there anything left on your bucket list substance wise, which you have yet to check off? Well, there's, you know, the infinite realm of the unknown. That's like a big bucket. Sure. It contains many millions of things. Sure. So, so, um, but I'm nothing, you know, about currently, um, I would, I'm very interested in going to Gabon and observing a traditional Ibogaine or rather Iboga ceremony. And, you know, I'm always interested in observing different types of experiences, but when it comes to the well-known psychoactive substances, I've got things pretty well. I've also never used purified muscimol, so that would be something worth doing at some point. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I kind of want to ask about, you know, we've been talking about drugs that most people know about or are familiar with in some way, um, uh, for the most part, or that have existed within society for, for a while. Um, I'm curious about the drugs that you've tried that no one has ever tried before you or at doses that no one's ever done. Uh, and what that experience is like. Um, that's an interesting question and one that I want to answer carefully because I don't want to advocate, but you know, use of some totally unknown substance. But, um, you know, one example might be, uh, there is, there's all these different subtypes, you know, there's a GABA A receptor, it's a pentamer and there's all these different alpha subunits and there's these sort of this sort of pharmacological shorthand that's used where like alpha one is associated with hypnotic effects and alpha two is associated with myorelaxation and anxiolysis and alpha three is the same and alpha four is possibly amnesic effects and alpha five is what methacolone binds to and on and on and on so um this there's always been this idea of like we could create and this is gonna be like a really long-winded answer uh, that we could create a GABA-A receptor, positive allosteric modulator that would have certain therapeutic properties that are seen in benzodiazepines, but not have some of the disadvantages like amnesia. And so there was a drug that was created by an Italian group called TCS-1205 that um, was a subtype selective positive allosteric modulator uh, that was supposed to not induce any form of amnesia in rodents. And I did have the opportunity to try that and do rodents tend to forget their names on <laughs> yes <Gabbard>? yes <laughs> forget where their <laughs> keys are yeah. yeah yeah and you know with again it's it's a problem without objective tests of memory it's actually impossible to say so i it's inconclusive but it did have a benzodiazepine like effect and that in and of itself was kind of interesting and you know if well yeah you can go on and on about these things yeah i mean where where do you even start like you know i i'm for some of these drugs, I'm sure there there's like some literature around what doses were used in animals and you kind of do some allometric scaling or something like that. Even, um, yeah, I think it's good to do the allometric scaling as a rough guideline, but you certainly don't want to just start there with right. the human to rodent conversion and say, that's the dose. Um, you know, I think that the, the method that was developed by Alexander Shulgin is the method to follow, which is simply start low start as low as conceivably possible start at tens of micrograms or one microgram and doesn't use much more material so why not just work up slowly from there you can you know knock out the early micrograms in the course of a day and then just move up very very slowly over the course of weeks and if you were using that method then it wouldn't matter if you discovered strychnine or cyanide you wouldn't be poisoned if you're doing it carefully enough so 
that's the basic idea. Start really low and gradually and carefully and thoughtfully and do as much research as possible and don't mix things with other substances. Another reason not to take several substances simultaneously if you if you don't have to is that, of course, they all potentially might interact with each other in one way or another and you want to have a clean palate if you're doing some kind of evaluation of something new. And yeah, and if you, know, if you modify this gum in some way and start introducing you know, various other alkaloids that have been found in tobacco, that's the way that you should do it. You know, start low and, and then do double blind um, experiments comparing the different alkaloids. And that's like a, a really good way to, to answer these questions. It seems like a good way to do any sort of new batch of substances that you, whether it's known or unknown. Um, so, so kids, if you're watching, it's okay to do one, one millionth of the effective dose of whatever drug we're talking about, but no more. <laughs> yes. Um, I think we have, uh, exhausted, um, most of our planned questions and we want to be respectful of your time. So, I mean, we could go on for a long time, but we, we really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. Well, it was fun. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks everybody. Uh, we really appreciate it. If you guys have any questions, uh, please feel free to reach out to us. And if we can convince Hamilton to come back again, we will answer those questions at that time. Thanks very much.